Hey guys, welcome to episode 90 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So at the top of the show, we just wanted to thank all of our supporters. Those who listen to us, review us, and have become Patreon supporters. And as always, we're going to lovingly thank our new patrons at the end of the episode. We are only able to keep this all going on because of how generous and kind you all have been. We've had some amazing reviews lately, like ones that were unbelievably sweet and we're so thankful for them so what's a better time to tell you guys how thankful we are we pretty much do that every episode yeah we but do. even more so on this one yes we really do appreciate it and i know it can be probably annoying because we do this every single episode but we can never let our audience know enough how much we really appreciate what they do for us and how much we care about them it's so true okay so are you Ready to get started, John? I'm ready. I am always ready for some true crime brilliance. Okay. Um, I must start this case out with a trigger warning, though. It does involve crimes committed against children. So if that is something that is a trigger for you in any way, I just wanted to let you know that right off the bat. I think that's always important to, to say. Well, duly noted. Thank you. Are you staying or? I'm hanging. Okay. Today's case takes us over to Oklahoma in 2008 when two beautifully innocent girls were enjoying a sleepover weekend. Something, if you were ever a girl in fifth or sixth grade, you know is one of the most exciting things that could happen to you. During this weekend, they went down to a nearby bridge where they would catch turtles and throw rocks into the water. And then they would go home and talk about boys and what they wanted to be when they grew up. These events totally encapsulating their morphing from childhood into their preteen years. However, this weekend would not end in one of the girls' parents coming to pick them up. It would end with the two girls being murdered as they walked along a dirt road. It would take years to solve their murders, but still, there are many questions that remain unanswered about this attack. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Walika, Oklahoma is a small town of under 1,000 people that lies between Tulsa and Oklahoma City. It is made up of ranchers, farmers, and their children. In true small towns like this, it is common that children are bused to another school district. And that is where we're going to start our case, within the Graham Public Schools. This regional district is composed of students from Walika and Henrietta areas. Within this district is Graham Elementary School, which is made up for students grades 5 through 8. Now, even though it's a regional school, there's not a lot of students. So the school properly adapts the class sizes to what they have within their school. So, for example, in 2008, because both uh, the fifth and sixth grade classes were so small, they were housed together. So they basically were in the same classes, but they were given different levels of work and instruction by their teachers. And that is how Skyla Whitaker and Taylor Paschal-Placker became best friends. 
Skyla was an 11-year-old cheerleader who had just moved into town two years prior. Being a new child in a rural area can be difficult because groups of children can't just gather on their blocks or bike to a nearby playground. They live more of an isolated life. Skyla was said to have had a spirited personality and a lot of empathy, which would explain why she quickly warmed to Taylor. Taylor was in the sixth grade, one year above Skyla, but basically in the same class, and she was new to the district too. She had been homeschooled her whole life and was starting public school for the first time, so obviously she was a little nervous, and this is something that Skyla sensed, and the two of them became the new girls together. Both girls were going through difficult times of transition, and it seemed like they clung to each other and became each other's support systems. And the two girls, once they met, did everything together. And their families couldn't be happier that their daughters had a friend that was such a positive influence. It's always good if you like your kids' friends. I feel like it is really important. And also, when when your kid has another friend that are very like-minded and do like and have a good time it's it's really nice i feel like i feel like it gives them their own space you know like to be themselves and do what they want to do it's nice yeah and you can rest easy because you trust them when they're with the other yeah person. i mean I, I would think so yeah <laughs> well i could imagine that taylor's um family were a little apprehensive about allowing her to start public school and nervous about not only her making friends, but like maybe like the kind of friends that she would make. So I think they were pleasantly surprised to see, you know, how she was kind of blossoming. Yeah, it's really cool to see too. Yeah. So to help her get used to school more, Skyla convinced Taylor to get into cheerleading, which she ended up loving. So that's something also that the two really shared and loved together. The teachers that they had said the two girls were inseparable. They were, of course, their own people. They had their own personalities, but they read the same books and liked the same things. They were just two best friends in middle school. And you kind of know what that's like, you know? You, you map out your whole lives together. And that's what they did. That's really cool. Yeah. So those that went to school with the girls said that Skyla was feisty, but she was always laughing and smiling. And Taylor was smart, but still a little shy, still coming into her own and gaining her own confidence. She was still um, having a little bit of difficulties getting used to the public school setting after years of being homeschooled. But of course, that's to be expected. Skyla had moved to the area from Baxter Springs, Kansas. And she lived in a nice house with her mother and stepfather. She had step-siblings and lived with the mixed family, who were very close. Taylor lived with her maternal grandparents, Pete and Vicki Placker. Her mother and other family members chose to live with a religious couple to save money. There were always different members of Taylor's extended family in and out of the house, always keeping things really lively. However, the people that were there the most were her cousin, Chris Placker Jr., and her grandfather's brother, Daryl, her mother's uncle, obviously. So another permanent resident of the house, besides Taylor and her mother, was her mother's younger sister, Linda. Taylor loved her Aunt Linda, and she loved the fact that she got to share a room with her. It was more like the two were like sisters rather than aunt and niece, because they were I don't want to say, like, close in age, but they weren't too far apart. Like, okay. Linda was 
couldn't have been old enough to be her mother. So it was more like she was not an aunt figure, but more like an older sister figure. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, hey, listen, that's uh, some families have that dynamic and there's nothing wrong with it. That's really cool. Yeah. You know. So the weekend of the crime began on Friday, June 6th, 2008. Skyla was sleeping over at Taylor's house because her parents were going away for a weekend getaway. Skyla was driven out to the Plackers house on County Line Road. Now, this road was very long and surrounded completely by deep woods. It is unpaved and something only locals would know how to get to and navigate through. The girls usually spent the time that they had together outside of school at Taylor's house because of the woods and all the different places they could go play there versus where Skyla lived. The girls especially liked walking to what was known as Bad Creek Bridge, which was located a little bit less than half a mile up the road from Taylor's grandparents' house. It was a small bridge that, if you didn't know the area, you would miss as you were driving through. It just became a spot that local kids would gather, and most likely that's because it's the only distinguishable landmark, like, on that dirt road, you know? I mean, you got to think, I mean, they're pretty far out, uh, seems like, from everything. Yes, rural kids usually, they find a spot, and then for some reason it just becomes, always becomes the spot. Yeah, I mean, even even when I, where I lived upstate, it wasn't like, I mean, you could walk to someone's house, but you wouldn't want to. <laughs> Yeah. You know? It'd be a long walk. Yeah, exactly. And this is where the girls loved to go. The main thing that they did there was catch turtles. So from the bridge, like to the to the right of it, there's a small embankment that you would walk down and it leads to water, which is basically just an offshoot of the North Canadian River. But it was not necessarily as safe and innocent as it sounds. There was a lot of bad activity that went on there as well. The local high school students hung out there and they drank and they did drugs. In the three months prior to the crime taking place, several drug arrests had taken place at the bridge. The teenagers who went there also liked to shoot their guns at the trees and empty bottles that they would set up for target practice. So a lot of shooting basically went on there. Taylor, who went there all the time as the bridge was so close to her house, actually liked to collect the shell casings. And this was something also that they had done that Friday on June 6th. So after spending hours by the bridge, Skyla and Taylor are going to leave and they're going to start their walk back to the Placker household. So before we get any further, I just wanted to take a break to hear from our first sponsor of the show, which is Vistaprint. The holidays are approaching, and you know what that means. The careful craft of re-gifting is to begin. Have you ever received something that you just know has passed through several hands before you? One year at work through a secret Santa setup, I received a gift that actually had someone else's name still on it. I guess the person had forgotten to take it off or didn't see it. Well, needless to say, I knew who my secret Santa was. Well, a gift like that isn't the best to receive. Absolutely zero thought went into it. And you never want to be the regifter. Well, Vistaprint specializes in unregiftable gifts. Gifts so unique and personal that you wouldn't dream of passing them on. One-off gifts like custom mugs and canvas prints 
photo books, and wall calendars. They're the kind of thoughtful gifts you really can't wait to give because they spark so much surprise and joy. At Vistaprint, you can always create your own personalized holiday cards, adding your photos and messages and adding special finishing touches like embossed foil and scalloped edges. So rather than giving an unoriginal gift this holiday, make it an unregiftable gift with a custom gift from Vistaprint. Go to vistaprint.com TCC to get started on your unregiftable gift. The holidays are coming up. Don't miss your chance to get an unregiftable gift. Get started today at vistaprint.com TCC. Okay, guys, let's get back to the show. So after their walk home from the bridge, the girls go back to their house and obviously they have dinner and they hang out. And that night, the girls actually had planned up to stay up all night, which a lot of kids do during sleepovers. And it never works. No. Well, they actually, I mean, they did it, basically. They stayed up all night talking and drawing designs on each other's hands and arms. And they stayed up till 10 a.m. That's impressive. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I know I know. When I ever, whenever I did one, I never made it. Never made it. Oh, no. Me either. Passed out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So when Taylor's Aunt Linda told the girls that they really should get some sleep, the girls agreed and they chose to lay down for a while and they slept until about 4 p.m. When they awoke again, they were greeted by Taylor's grandmother who offered them breakfast, I guess you could say. More closer to dinner, but to them it was breakfast. While the girls were eating, they were told that Skyla's mother had calls and she would be coming to pick her up soon. So this made the girls stop eating immediately, and they told Taylor's grandmother that they wanted to head down to the bridge one more time because they wanted to catch turtles before Skyla's mother got there. She agreed, but reminded Taylor to keep her cell phone on because she would most likely call to update them when Skyla's mother was close so the girls knew when to head back to the house and basically pack up her stuff. So the girls agreed that they would do so, and they rushed off. Their cereal barely even touched. They were still like, they were excited to be together. So they had left the house at around 4.30 p.m. At around 5.15, Vicki Placker received a phone call from Skyla's mother informing her that she would be on her way to pick up her daughter. As soon as she hung up the phone, Vicki dialed her granddaughter Taylor's number, and she was unable to get in touch with her. Her phone just kept ringing. So she wanted to make sure that the girls were back in time to pick up Skyla's things. So she asked her husband, Taylor's grandfather, to go to the bridge and get the girls. Well, he agreed to go. And once he got close to the bridge, he began yelling the girls' names. But he wasn't getting a response. As soon as he walked closer to the creek, he saw them. Both laying on the ground. And he noticed right away that they had been shot several times. The first thing he wanted to do was call 911, but he didn't have a cell phone. He remembered that Taylor had hers, so he leaned down to his granddaughter's body and reached around for her cell phone, eventually finding it in her pocket. The phone was dead. All he could do was run home. That's that's insane. You know, right away, right now, I'm already thinking, like, could they have been accidentally shot you know she liked to pick up the casings 
So I don't know if maybe it's an accident and they don't and the people that are shooting don't even know. Okay. Um the one thing that would stop him from thinking that is the amount of times both girls were shot. That's true and also I'm um, now that I'm, now I'm thinking more I mean if the casings are being shot on well, let's just say from one end of the field let's say well those casings wouldn't be towards the end of the field where they got shot you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Like you got to think each each cartridge ejects when you shoot. So they would be on the ground from where they're shooting from not where the bullets would end. So they would be So yeah, close. I I already yeah. wrote my own theory off, but no, but that would be your first thought because you're yeah. thinking, okay, if people use this area for target practice, was it an accident? And the amount of bullets and where they their bodies were found, their bodies were found right off of the road. So to go down to the bridge and the embankment, they would have had to go further into the woods and they would be kind of closer to the offshoot of this North Canadian River. But they were right off the road. So it looks like somebody who was on the road had shot the girls. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. Yeah, because then, yeah, because if they were there, those bullets could have shot anybody while they were driving past. Right. And we're going to get into um, the amount of shots, the shell casings, and what kind of weapon was used. Okay. But, I mean, you have to, like, your heart has to break for Taylor's grandfather finding these two girls and then the desperation of not having a phone and then having to, with this knowledge of this news and the heartbreak that you're feeling, have to run home half a mile. Like, it's just yeah. so devastating. I, I think that's probably the worst feeling, you know, if, you know, you feel so hopeless in trying to save somebody because yeah. they're not even moving, they're unresponsive. And then to make matters even worse, you don't even have a phone. So it's just really, that sucks. Yeah. I feel bad. As Pete Placker approached his house, he was screaming out for his wife. Get the phone, he told her. Call 911. Someone shot them. Panicked and in hysterics, Vicky called the police. She told them over and over again that someone had shot her grandbaby, and Pete rushed back to secure the scene. He also wanted to be with the girls and not have them laying in the woods alone. While he was watching, standing in the road just beyond where the girls' bodies lay, he saw a truck approaching. Now, again, this is a very remote road, so it was rare to see a car on it. He noticed the truck right away. It was his brother, Daryl, Taylor's great uncle. He stopped the truck and let Daryl know what had happened to the girls. He panicked and told Pete that he needed to call 911. We did, he said, but what I need you to do is to go back down the road the way you came and block the path so no one else comes down here except the police. Shortly after his brother left to go block the path, Pete was joined by his wife, Vicky, who had hung up the phone with the police. She said she needed to come out and see the girls. Upon the sights of their body, Vicky broke down and cried hysterically. So this is something that's going to come up a little later. Um, I understand the hysterics of the family and the devastation that these 12 and 11 year olds were just ruthlessly murdered and how I I mean I can't even imagine what that's like but from the time between the phone call 
and the sheriff responding to the crime scene, the family was left alone with the bodies at the crime scene for about half an hour. And I know that this might have happened unintentionally and because they were devastated, but some contamination of the crime scene did occur. The touching of the yeah. bodies, um, footprints, stuff like that. I mean, you have to, you have to um, kind of expect that. I almost feel like. I mean, you know, that's like seeing one of your loved ones there, and you're not even going to approach to try to um, see if they're alive or see, and you know, just to, I don't mean even to consult. Like, uh, yeah, you want to hold them, to hold them. So, yeah, like I mean, I feel like that's almost impossible. I feel like, I mean, like I feel like that's going to happen. But I see what you're saying. Like now that that crime scene right. now is not encapsulized. It's there's stuff all over the place now. Well, and we know the thought process of investigators. I mean, first, just to be safe within the investigation, they're going to have to rule out the family. But now it is a little strange that the family had half an hour alone with the bodies. So if they were the ones responsible, what were they doing to this crime scene? Also, um, at least, though, they did have the, the grand, I think it was the grandfather did have the wherewithal to tell the other family member to block the entrance so no one else would go over there, yeah. which is, I, you know, I guess the best that you can do. Yeah. Right. I mean, to just have no other contact of any other person be there. Yeah. So. I mean, and I know he's in the wrong state of mind, but like as someone from the outside looking in, his arrival is a little suspicious to me. Um. Yeah. I, I think so. I mean, I, the problem is that I can't really pinpoint like what I'm like. I don't know what I'm feeling about him yet. Yeah. But yeah, I do find that kind of bizarre that he shows up right at the time that they have already called the police. Like, it's just kind of weird. Yeah. So far. Wouldn't that be the best alibi? It would to be. To be just driving there, like on the way. Yeah. You know, like I had every intention of being there. I didn't, you know, I was going there anyway. And yeah, like. It would be a good alibi, right? Well, oh, it can't be him. He's been with me the whole time. He told me to call 911. Right. You know? Like he arrived just after this crime happened. Correct. So the first on the scene was the Ofusky Sheriff's Department. Once they assessed the crime scene, they called in the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. They knew that this crime scene and everything that it would need to process it was completely out of the realm of the poss- possibility for them because they just didn't have the ability to do it, you know, financially or even with the equipment that they had or the crime scene techs that they, they just were unable to do so because they were a small department. So they had the wherewithal to call in the OSBI, which is always a big move because, you know, turf wars always go down of who's responsible for a crime. And sometimes people have too much pride than to call in a, a higher organization. So you have to say, like, it's a good thing that they called in. Yeah, it's always I always find it so interesting. The battles of of like, you know, asserting dominance, <laughs> like your local yes. police department and, you know, your, your sheriff's department or your state police or whatever. There's always like a, you know, back and forth battle. I always find it interesting. So by the time they were able to arrive there, it was 8.30 p.m. Investigators at the scene surmised that a possible sexual assault could have taken place because of what they witnessed with the positioning of Taylor's body. They said that it was in a sexual nature, so that this was a possibility, that there was um, a rape involved. But they didn't know yet. They were going to do a lot of um, DNA processing and testing. 
So all of the girls' clothings were sent out for DNA testing. Their bodies were swabbed for DNA, and hair and blood samples were collected at the scene. Taylor had been shot in the hip or groin area, but what was strange about this was that the wound was beneath her shorts, meaning that she must have been shot in this area when her shorts had been off. Like, there was no bullet wound through her shorts. Okay, I see what you're saying. The crime scene analyst did try and look for footprints at the scene, but this was very difficult to detect. Um, Not only members of the sheriff's department walked through the scene, but so did the Placard family, meaning mostly just Pete and Vicky did. Daryl didn't get out of his truck. So in reality, how safe and reliable is the evidence collected at this scene? Some of it could be ruled out and a decent lawyer could very well argue evidence tampering. Another interesting thing that was found at the crime scene was that there were two weapons. Another interesting thing that was found out at the crime scene was that two weapons had been used in the commission of the girls' murders. Three 40 caliber shell casings were found at the scene that matched the wounds on the girls. Three 22 caliber bullet wounds were made, but their casings had not been recovered. Taylor had been shot five times and Skyla eight. So that means not all of the 40 caliber shell casings were even recovered. Only three of them were. So this was odd because there was more wounds than casings. So was the perpetrator or perpetrators in a vehicle? Did they pick up the casings and not find the three? Hmm. So, I mean, they they were very unclear about what took place. But usually, you know, when it comes to investigating, when there's two weapons used, there's two killers. So the OSBI put a rush on the DNA tests and the results they got back were shocking. Semen had been detected in both pairs of the girl's underwear. Another thing that was discovered during further lab testing was that Taylor had gunpowder residue on her face. So this meant that the gun had to have been about 10 to 12 inches from her. Also, upon further analysis of the girls' bodies, it seemed evident that Taylor, the older of the two girls, had been standing in front of Skyla and trying to block her from the gun. All in all, this is a very bizarre case. Between the bullet wounds below the shorts, the semen found in the underwear of both girls, the missing shell casings, two potential killers, and the fact that it happened all during broad daylight, and albeit it was a remote road, but, I mean, this is a bridge that people were known to frequent. I mean, it's a pretty ballsy move. So Yeah, which tells me that he must be, or he, or yeah, well, it is a he. Um, well, we don't know. He or she. He or, or she. Multiple he's or multiple, multiple she's. Yeah, you know, you're right, you're right. Or mixed combination. It, you're right. You're um, making assumptions. I'm sorry. <laughs> I find that a little bizarre, the whole thing here, because you have, you have the, you, they can't find certain bullet casings, but can find others. There's bullet residue on the body because someone was shot extremely close. It's like, um, you know what? I, I'm thinking like where they were shot from, right? 
because we don't know if where their bodies were was where they were shot from, like where they were shot or were they put there afterwards or what? Well, I feel like the shell casings being near them shows us that that's probably the location in which they were shot. But what is interesting is the fact that there was semen detected. So you're telling me that two girls were shot near a road. I know it's a remote road, but there's a lot of traffic by the bridge. Um, You have to think, especially because it's the weekend, the first weekend of summer vacation. There's got to be a lot of kids coming or, or like somebody knows that there is a possibility that there are kids coming. So someone was brazen enough to not only shoot these girls several times, but then potentially rape them or leave semen on their underwear in the open, basically. And I mean, the, the question is how many people were involved and, and what's the reasoning for this? I mean, is it a crime of opportunity? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is weird, right? Like, I mean, was there like some sort of like vendetta against the parents and they took it out on the children? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so unknown. There's a lot of unknowns here. If they found some cases that don't match the amount of shots, what's going on in my head right now is I'm saying, well, could they have been shooting from a car? Okay. Possibly. Because that would that would make sense in a way, depending on the gun, if some of the casings were flying out the window, or whether they were flying back into the car after being fired. All right. That's what I'm thinking. That's a possibility. That you know they're being fired back into the car, but other than that, yeah, I don't know why they would be not a correlating a correlation between shells or casings, I should yeah. say, and bullet wounds. Yeah. And I think it's interesting, like the um, timing of the events of. The shots and the the sexual assault potentially because that shot beneath her shorts is interesting where the short doesn't have any bullet wound in it but her groin area does right like were they shot naked right and then they were dressed afterwards like right. post-mortem but then the semen was in the underwear so maybe the shorts were off but i don't i don't know but it, and they tried to test it to see if, like, maybe if Taylor was laying on the ground, could a shot have gone, like, up her shorts, potentially. But the way the bullet entered, that was impossible. Like, it had to have been a straight on. Yeah. So, a lot of unanswered questions. So, the first place investigators are going to look is family and friends, as always. The families of both girls were brought in for questioning. Obviously, the questioning of Taylor's family involved a little bit more than just the main characters because she lived with so many relatives. They were all ruled out for the time being because nothing stood out when they were asking questions, you know? And Skyla's parents were completely ruled out because they had been away for the weekend when the crime took place and they were driving back and... Um, their easy pass records indicated this. So it okay. couldn't have been them. So in the back of their minds, the investigators did not like the fact that the Placker family could have destroyed some evidence at the crime scene and or messed with the physical evidence. So even though the Plackers, 
they weren't throwing up initial red flags. They were always there in the back of investigators' minds. Like, we have to keep them there as potential witnesses. We can't 100% rule them out, which is understandable, especially because it's half a mile from their house. And it's kind of like a, even though it's a great, cool family atmosphere, it's a revolving door of relatives. So, I mean, it's a horrible thing to think, but crazier things have happened, right? We sure know that. Yes. I mean, it is. I mean, you never know. Family, stranger, you never know. Yeah. So the Plackers had stated during their interview that they had not heard any gunshots. But this is most likely because Pete was watching TV very loudly. Although I will say that if this is a spot where people were always shooting off their guns as target practice... After a while, someone that lives half a mile from that area, they might not hear it or it just becomes such a common noise that you might not even recognize it anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, especially if people, other people in the area kind of do this for sport. Yeah. You have to think. Also, unfortunately, some of the bullets that were used were 22s. 22s aren't really loud. I mean, it wouldn't be much louder than like an airsoft like a, or like a pellet gun, like, okay. a, like a rifled pellet gun where you put the bullet in and, and then kind of. Uh, bend the barrel back like it's not much louder than that so they there's a big strong chance they wouldn't have heard yeah, I mean, anything the 20, i mean listen i'm not gonna lie i mean yeah 22s are definitely I mean, it's a bullet it's it's a gun it's gunpowder but it's not it's not much louder than a pellet gun okay now if a 40 caliber was used maybe it's a different story but like he said he was listening to loud tv and yes we don't know the exact range of where he was in comparison to where the Kids were shot. True. So, you know, um, the sound dissipates over distance. Yeah. So you might, let's just say you might, a forty caliber, I don't know off the top of my head, but like a forty caliber round, you might hear that maybe within, you know, 200, 300 yards. But then what about, you know, this is all hypothetical. And then after 300 yards, you're not going to hear that. Or as clearly. Right. Because right. it's not subsonic. They're not like subsonic where it, it goes off and then it's a ripple where it's like pow, pow. Like where you hear it and it crackles through the air. Oh, I see what you're saying. They're subsonic, so you'll hear like double cracks when it goes off because it's it's literally breaking the sound barrier. So that's really cool. Yeah. So well, Vicky Placker did say that it was even difficult for her to hear the phone ring. He had the TV so loud. Right. So so there's so many so factors was, here. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty loud. Okay, so we're gonna take a break here to hear from our second sponsor of the show, Best Fiends. When you finish binging the latest riveting podcast on your list, there's always one lingering question staring you in the face. Now what? Sure, you could deep dive down the Wikipedia wormhole, researching everything related to the show. I mean, who among us has not done that? But when your brain or your browser tabs are full to the brim, it might be time to take a load off. That's when I like to clear a few levels on Best Fiends. I've been playing Best Fiends for over a year now, and it is the perfect way to de-stress for me. It helps me get my mind off of everything. It's my break from work, deep diving research, and the dishes that I probably should be doing. It has also been so rewarding to grow my collection of fiends and level them up. I get so excited when a new fiend pops out of one of the three crates that I get rewarded with every time I pass a new level. We all love a good challenge, and Best Fiends gives you over 5,000 of them. And with this game, more levels, events, and challenges are added all the time, 
which means you don't have to choose between binging and boredom. In fact, you might find yourself wondering how you ever found the time for a dull moment before. Download Best Fiends free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. So while the Placker family was being questioned by the agents of the OSB, their household was being searched for evidence. And the room that was mainly being searched was Taylor's room where the girls were sleeping. The most important pieces of evidence that were found were the clothes that the girls had been wearing the day before and the comforter that they both slept on. They were all sent to the labs for testing, as well, obviously, as the evidence that was found at the crime scene. The next move of the OSBI was to make a hotline available, uh, a 24-hour hotline for tips to come in from the community. It was a small town, and the possibility of someone knowing something was pretty high. They could have seen or heard something that was suspicious. There were some leads that came in through the hotlines, but none of them really panned out. When the test results came back for the clothing and bedsheets in Taylor's bedroom, the investigators were shocked. There was semen found on the bedspread. Agents wanted to immediately question all the males from the Placker household again. All members of the family went in for questioning, a second round, and they agreed to give DNA samples so they could be compared to the semen samples found not only on the comforter, but on the girls' underwear as well. Of all the men who were questioned, Chris Placker Jr., the cousin of Taylor, was the only one that agents suspected. Now, this had a lot to do with the fact that the 28-year-old had a police record, which included assault with a deadly weapon, and he was a known drug dealer in the area. When the DNA test results came back, they matched Chris Placker Jr., but only on the comforter. When he was confronted by this, he admitted that he and his girlfriend had had sex on Taylor's bed earlier that week. Ew. That's your 12-year-old cousin. Wait, that's so strange. Yeah. Um, He said no one had been home, so he brought her there and had sex with her. Now... I have a really good reason as to why a 28-year-old man would need to take his girlfriend to his grandparents' house and have sex with her on his 12-year-old cousin's bed. Do you want to know what it is? Is there really any explanation for this? He's married. Oh, okay. Yes. All right, so this does change a Okay, it gives some of this a little bit of credi- like credibility. Yeah, you're like, oh, okay, that's where you take your mistress? Well, still weird, though. <laughs> uh, still Super weird. Still super weird. And his wife, though, still comes in clutch for him. So I guess that's what one would call a ride or die. I guess. I guess. Uh, She is actually his alibi. And she confirms that on the day of the murder, they were actually attending an event that was 85 miles away. Okay. So they're going to think Chris Placker Jr. is weird as hell. But they don't suspect him only because his DNA sample did not match the semen sample found in either of the girls' underwear from the crime scene. So this is just a really weird thing that he did. Weird. Yes. In fact, <laughs> that's a whole different crime. In fact, none of the DNA samples that were taken from all of the males in the Placker family matched the semen at the crime scene. So 
that made the agents of the OSBI feel a little bit more comfortable kind of clearing the Placker family of so any none wrongdoing. Of them had, none of them matched at all. No. The next avenue that the agents were going to explore was the guns. They wanted to narrow down exactly what guns were used in the shootings. So they decided to reach out to the small community. They asked every owner of a registered Glock in town to bring their weapon to the sheriff's office because they determined that's what the 40 caliber was. You're the gun person, not me. They were surprised that there was a big turnout. The thought process here was the kids. They knew that the kids of the town went there to do some target shooting and they did it all the time. So maybe there was an off chance that someone had taken their father's gun, used it in the crime, and just returned it to where it always had been kept. So then when their fathers brought it in for testing, the last thing they would think was, oh, this is going to be my gun. Because maybe one of their sons or daughters had taken it. So each Glock that was brought in was used so they could collect and analyze the shell casings that were produced. They also swabbed each gun for DNA. Now, although this was a great idea, no new leads came from this. Okay, so they okay, so they really examined examined the guns that were brought in. Brought in. Okay. So this tragic case slowly grew cold as the agents of the OSBI could not make sense or get a lead from the bizarre string of evidence that was left behind after this heinous crime had been committed. Ten weeks passed from the Glock collection until the next tip came in regarding the case. Someone called the tip line and left an anonymous statement. I think Dustin Daly was involved. They said that there were rumors that he was going around making admissions about the homicide. He specifically sent a text to someone that stated, I took care of the girls. Daly was an 18-year-old boy from the town who was known to spend a lot of his time at Bad Creek Bridge, smoking, drinking, and shooting his guns for target practice. So here we have a guy that is notorious for shooting his gun. Correct. So that's, uh, that's something to definitely look into, you know? Yeah, and that's kind of like your first thought. Like, that's even was your first thought when I told you what happened. You're like, if people are known for just shooting off their guns here, then isn't that the first logical thing that would come to your mind? Someone who had their gun there for target practice just used it for the crime. Right. I mean, and they would have no idea. I mean, if it was truly, truly an accident and there was no semen found or anything like that, you would think, oh, my God, this, well, this wasn't intentional. Or, and if there was only one shot. True. Unless they were going crazy with it. Yeah. Um... 13 shots is a lot. Which, and it, was it a Glock? You said it was a Glock. With the 40 caliber. Right, one. so what's cool yeah. about Glock, Glock 40 uh, caliber, is that it's like this perfect balance between, um, it's not quite a 45, but it's not quite a 9mm. It's like perfectly balanced. It's it's light. It's lighter weight than a 45 and has a little bit more stopping power than a 9mm. So a lot of people like it, but what's great about it is that it has a, capac- a pretty large capacity, and they come in so many different you know variants. Though I don't know if they still make them like that anymore. I think it's more like a special order. It depends on the state and everything like that. But anyway, unless this person was going crazy with it and firing it like 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 a madman, um, that would account for all the shots on the kids. But the determining factor here is that there's semen found 
and the sh- the whole thing with the shorts. Well, and there's the the bullets from a twenty two, and there's twenty two caliber rounds as well. So, but there is a guy here. I mean, there's there's someone to investigate for sure. Right. So Daly is what the sheriff's office referred to as a troubled teen. He had been arrested for a burglary and threatening family members. He was brought in for questioning and a warrant was obtained to seize all of the weapons he owned. They were tested and the shell casings were collected and analyzed and the guns were swabbed for DNA. Same as the Glocks had been. While while Daly was brought in for questioning, he refused to answer any of the questions that the agents had for him. So ultimately, he had to be questioned in front of a grand jury to get him to answer even anything. It was realized pretty quickly through the weapon analysis and the actual answers that he had to the questions that Daly had sent that text and bragged about committing the murders only to gain notoriety. In no way had he been involved in what happened because he didn't know details of the crime scene. And that's what police, a lot of details of this scene were kept quiet because they knew that this is something only the killer would know. So when they were questioning him, he clearly had no understanding of what the crime scene even looked like. So this was him just trying to go around town and create attention for himself and he seemed to love the media attention i understand liking media attention but let's just point one thing out right now i don't know what person would care that you killed two kids and rape them i think yeah i think that that would take away any one thinking it's that... not like you're getting street cred it's not like oh hey like they're gonna what are they gonna think you're like a hero or something he was disturbed well, you would have to yeah. be to th- to take credit for something like that. Meanwhile, you know nothing about it and then think it's totally cool for you to uh, flaunt that you killed children. Well, and to create such a problem that the police are going to have to question you in front of a grand jury because you refuse to answer any questions. Um, he's definitely an interesting character, and I think he earned himself a microscope that the police are now going to hold him under 100% I mean I don't want to I mean for all we know maybe there's something going on with him maybe something's not right but yeah some mental instability yes so I don't want to go I don't want to go super hard on him but I'm just saying that that would not be if this was somebody of sound mind this is not something that uh, would be talked about and be you would flaunt that around yeah so if someone was of sound mind, they wouldn't have sent that text message or no. bragged about this. No. So after another lead went cold with Daly, there was a long stretch where there were absolutely no advancements made in the case. Because of this, the OSBI, about a year after the murders took place, reached out to a profiler to take a look at the case. To him as well, all of the evidence just did not make sense together. Everything conflicted. There was evidence that made it look like the murder was quick and the perpetrator or or perpetrators ran out there. There was evidence that made it look like the murder was quick and the perpetrator or perpetrators got out of there as quickly as they could or drove away as fast as they could. But then there was evidence that spoke to the contrary, like that they stayed a while. For example, the semen found in the underwear. This crime happened in broad daylight, which is also very rare. 
The gunshot on Taylor's groin beneath her shorts was also fascinating, and the order of events and the purpose behind the murders were very hard to determine. The only thing that the profiler could say definitively was that the perpetrator or perpetrators had knowledge of the area and potentially the victims too, even if just as like a kind of I know someone because they live in the same town as me kind of way. And he also, he or she, sorry, I did it too, had knowledge of firearms and most likely left the scene of the crime in a vehicle. Right. Which kind of makes me feel like maybe, speculation of course, but maybe what I said could be true. Or maybe they fired out of the car and, you know, any one of those things could be possible. Right. Well, at this point, the OSBI issued a reward for $160,000 to anyone who gave a tip that led to the arrest of a suspect. But still, nothing was said. At this point, the parents of the town were on edge. The town where the kids would play in the woods or out on their farms was now home to none of that. The kids were kept inside for the most part. There was a child killer on the loose. And he was most likely, oh, I did it again, See? he or she, you're right, I, I'm sorry, <laughs> was most definitely one of them. So this is someone that you know. This is a town of less than a thousand people. One of you is the killer. Yeah. That's scary. The next lead in the case would not come until 2011, when a man who, ironically, was a co-worker of Linda Placker... Kevin Sweet got pulled over by a sheriff's deputy. He had run a stoplight, and when they approached the vehicle, the deputy felt that the man and the female in the car who was with him, she was later identified as his girlfriend, were acting suspiciously. So he asked them to get out. When the vehicle they were in was searched, weed was found in the center console. And a black gun case that was empty had been found in the backseat of the car. And this is a gun case that was used to house a Glock. When asked about the gun, Sweet said that he no longer had it because he had sold it to, and these are his exact words, a white girl desperate for a gun. But he could not remember her name. He was then asked where he got the gun. And he said that he had bought it after his 21st birthday from a Henrietta police officer. Okay, can I just say something? You can. I want to interject. That's so funny you just said that. So obviously I don't know anything about this case, right? Guess what most police issued weapons are? Tell us, John. A Glock 40 caliber. Wow. It is the most used issue that I'm aware of. I should say, I actually, let me reiterate, I, they like forty caliber. It's, it's requested by law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I still think it's 9mm, but it's very common for them to like that caliber round. So it's actually so funny that you just said that about it being a law enforcement officer's weapon. Right. Well, the couple was arrested for possession, but eventually they were released on a suspended sentence, as it was the first offense for both of them. The officer that sold the Glock to Sweet was found. He confirmed that he did sell the gun to the man, but that was all he knew about the weapon. 
So basically, Sweet had to be let go. But the agents at the OSBI were contacted because this story about selling the Glock to an unknown female seemed very convenient. So the investigation began. The first place they looked was Sweet's Facebook account. And it was eye-opening. There were a lot of pictures of him holding guns and posing with them in, I guess what you could say, an aggressive way. Very bizarre pictures. And it was clear that Sweet had a strong knowledge of firearms. And this is something that they were looking for in a potential. Yeah, I mean, you got to think anything that can give you. Yeah, suspect. Sorry. Anything that's going to give you some sort of clarity on where to go next and what leads to follow is a, is a win in my book. You know what I mean? Yeah, at this point, I think they're they're so in the dark that any type of like avenue to go down would be good. Yeah, and it seems like something's happening here. Like They're starting to close in on what's happening. Possibly. I completely agree. Yeah. Okay, so what we're going to do here is take a break to hear from our final sponsor of the show, Simply Safe. So there's almost always a rise in break-ins during the holidays. And that's why Simply Safe Home Security is having a huge holiday sale. 30% off any Simply Safe system and a free security camera. Recently, US News and World Report called it the best home security of 2020. So whether you're traveling or staying put for the holidays, Check out the 30% off plus free security camera deal before it ends this week. We love everything about our Simply Safe home security system, but what I cannot get over is the high quality equipment and how clear the camera footage is. We can see every detail of everything that goes on in our house. It really makes me rest easy knowing that we are protected. Simply Safe won the CNET editor's choice for home security. And was named Best of 2020 by Forbes and Popular Mechanics. The system has an arsenal of sensors and cameras that protect every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in about 30 minutes. It's super easy. Then, Simply Safe security specialists take over, monitoring your home around the clock, and they're ready to send emergency help the moment there's an alarm. Get 30% off Simply Safe plus a free security camera today by visiting simplysafe.com/couple. Hurry because the deal expires this Friday. That's simplysafe.com/couple. simplysafe.com/couple to get 30% off. Okay guys, back to the show. The OSBI agents definitely wanted to talk to Sweet about his whereabouts during the time of the murder. So they went to his mother's house where he lived. She told them that she was unsure of where her son was. He had left home with his girlfriend, Ashley Taylor, to get eloped, and she was not very happy about it. A few weeks previously, Sweet's mother accused his girlfriend of stealing her wedding ring and demanded that her son break up with her. Instead of doing that, he chose to leave his mother's house and had planned to elope with her in New Orleans. She did say, though, that he was supposed to be back within the week. So they decided to wait it out. Before the week was up, Sweet returned to his mother's house, and oddly, he was without his bride. Sweet was questioned by the agents about the murders of Skyla and Taylor, but 
They had nothing to hold him on, so he was released. Later, the same day, three days after his return from New Orleans, Ashley's parents went to his apartment and demanded that they know where their daughter was. Sweet had claimed that she had left him and went off, but her parents knew that this couldn't be true. They had not heard from her. Desperately, they asked Sweet, please let us know where our daughter is or where her body is. Imagine asking someone that. I mean, that's kind of crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, you got to think. I mean, why won't you? I mean, if you have nothing to hide, you would just tell them where. Why are you was. acting so weird? Or, or why you're acting yeah. so weird? Yeah. It seemed like the couple knew that something horrible had happened to their daughter. Sweet responded to Ashley's father. And this was like jarring for him. Oh, I guess they're going to blame me for this. Like they did the Walika girls. So Michael Taylor, Ashley's father, went right to the police to let them know what he said. Because it's like, okay, now now he knows this guy who my daughter was supposed to run off and get married to. He comes back without my daughter. And now he's also accused of killing the, the two girls that everyone's been looking for the killer for for years. I mean, at this point, I mean, is he trying to like implicate himself or something? Like, I mean, is he trying to get caught? Yeah, this is pretty bad. So Sweet was brought in for questioning again, this time about his missing fiance. He was asked what happened. You guys were supposed to get married. And it is weird, dude, that you came back without her. Like, true. come on. Yeah. Sweet said that they were traveling south to go to New Orleans when they got into a fight about his mother's jewelry. He accused her and she got furious that he believed his mother and not her when she said that she did not steal the jewelry. He said that the fight escalated quite quickly and they were parked by nearby woods, like just stopping and taking a break from driving. And Ashley grabbed a knife and she made a comment to the effect of you. If you don't want to marry me, then I might as well kill myself. And she ran from the parked car into the woods with the knife she was crying hysterically and sweet chased her down they ended up standing next to a lake like they were on a pier right by a lake and ashley had the knife to her throat she was very upset still crying and instead of consoling her sweet told her do it and when she just continued to cry he repeated himself again do it she was shaking and she couldn't I mean, she didn't want to. It was obvious that what she wanted from him was love. And it didn't seem like he was given that. Right. Instead, he, you know, tells her to... To do it. To kill herself. Which I think is so bizarre. Yes. Well, Sweet convinced Ashley to hand over the knife. Now, this is what he's telling OSBI agents. Once she gave him the knife, he turned on her. Well, if you won't do it, he said to her callously, then I'll be the man and I'll do it. And then he told the agents that she wanted to kill herself, but she couldn't do it. So I helped her along and he began stabbing her until she died. And then he pushed her body into the lake and then he walked back to his car and drove away like nothing happened. Well, because his eyes, he was... Helping her, you know, 
Like, well, not. not I think that was his excuse. I think he's obviously mentally disturbed. And but but this is we'll get into what happened. But this is a little bit of a strange story that he's telling right now, because after this confession, the OSBI had the pier searched where the attack had supposedly happened. And they also had the lake searched. Well, there was no blood on the pier anywhere and the lake had no bodies in it. So warrants had obviously been obtained to search Kevin Sweet's apartment and both of his parents' homes because they were divorced. And within the fire pit at his father's house, they found charred human bones, which would later be traced back to Ashley Taylor, glasses that also belonged to Ashley, and casings that matched the shell casings found at the crime scene of Skyla and Taylor. Okay, so I'm I'm leaning towards that he's the one that is responsible for this. I mean, you have to think, right? I mean, what yeah. other evidence do you need? I mean, he he has literally come out and said to the the one the one father that you know they blame me for this. They'll they'll blame me for this one too. They found the casings. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has so many violent tendencies. I mean, and now this thing with the other daughter here, with, with the whole getting married and everything. He admitted to murder. He admitted to it. So, I mean, at, at this point, I mean, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't lean to anybody else is what I'm saying. Right. I mean, he did lie about how the murder took place. Obviously, it didn't take place while they were on a road trip unless he killed her on the road trip and then drove back to his father's house. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. No, I do understand. It's possible. Or he said they were going to New Orleans to elope to, like, save himself time to try and get rid of the body. I don't know exactly what happened there, but it's very unfortunate. And I feel horrible for this family and this girl who thought potentially that she was starting a life with somebody and he took her life from her. Yeah. So... All of this news, all of this evidence being found was something that the OSBI were happy with because they felt like Sweet totally fit the profile that they were given by the profiler. Uh, He knew the area because he actually had a family member that lived on County Line Road and he had an extensive knowledge of firearms. Sweet was questioned for two and a half hours. He had denied any involvement with the murder of the young girls. He said that there was no point to do that. Why would he shoot those girls? And then, after he was presented with all of the evidence they had against him, Sweet changed his story. He said that he was driving on County Line Road to visit family, but then he saw two demons, presumably he's referring to the girls, um, that he thought they were monsters and he had to shoot them. Is he setting up a defa- uh, insanity plea I here? I was just thinking that. Yeah. Uh, next, he offered an explanation as to the evidence that was found at the scene. He said that he had two guns in the car with him, forty caliber Glock, and as he was shooting that weapon, he ran out of bullets. So then he got out his twenty-two revolver that he had in the car as well, and most of the shell casings went into his car but he does remember that a few came out. So how are you lucid enough to remember those details and facts, but you thought two demons were standing in front of you? Also, I, you know, if you're so afraid of demons, I don't know why then you sexually assaulted them. Well, we're going to get to that. Okay. So Sweet 
pled guilty to all three murders to avoid the death penalty. He knew the evidence was piled up against him, and if he wanted to live, that was his only option. During the hearing with a judge, the state claimed that the real reason Sweet killed those girls was because his brother, Brian, had recently died of a drug overdose. And who supplied his brother with the drugs that killed him? Chris Placker Jr. Okay, so is this kind of like what I was alluding to? Right. With maybe like Chris Placker Jr. owed him something maybe? Well, not is responsible for his brother's death. Sold him bad drugs. Okay, and that's why he now takes it out on these two kids. Right, like that's you took a member of my family. I'm going to take one of yours. Hmm. And then Skyla was just wrong place, wrong time. Yeah, revenge kill. Yeah, revenge kill. Yeah. Um, or he was just disturbed. We don't know. I he I mean, might not have known. Yeah, but. He did know who who Taylor was because of the town and because he did work on and off with Linda Placker. Okay. I mean, and I think it's a little bit of both here, by the way. Uh, It's definitely uh, a revenge kill. And I also think he's a little mentally disturbed. So the next phase of the trial was sentencing. Right before sentencing, there was chaos in the offices before, in the offices behind the courtroom. Sweet's lawyer was meeting with him before the sentencing. And without any provocation, Sweet took a razor out of the sleeve of his shirt and attempted to attack his lawyer with it. The lawyer was relatively unharmed, but was cut, and he did press charges against Sweet. What I do just want to interject here and say is that there is an overwhelming amount of talk coming from Sweet's family basically saying that he's innocent that the police railroaded him that this was a false confession and I think that his violent tendencies are pretty obvious um, with what he did to his fiance and with what he just tried to do with his lawyer and I think that it's um unfair to say that this is not a violent man like I don't think he was railroaded by the OSBI I don't think that I just think that um he he was a violent person you know definitely so for the remainder of the sentencing um sweet had to be fully restrained he was given three life sentences for the murders of 23 year old Ashley Taylor 11 year old Skyla Whittaker and 13-year-old Taylor Peschel Placker. All of his appeals had been denied. But there's one thing left about this case. The semen found in the girl's underwear. Of course, Sweet's DNA had been tested. And it was not a match for the semen found in the girl's underwear. So where did that come from? All right. That changes a lot in my mind, right? Because... We don't know exactly what's going on here, but I'm thinking it had to have been something where they were sexually assaulted before they were gunned down, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then, no, that wouldn't even make sense. Because it didn't match any of the placards DNA. That, yeah, it wouldn't even make sense. And then on top of that, um, you would have the whole shorts thing with the bullet. Yeah. 
so now I'm just sitting here kind of like... Yeah, the end of this case kind of like makes your head spin out of control. Yeah. Um. Wow. I always like to leave off with something, but I don't even know what I can even come up with. Because if he, if his DNA does not match what was left behind yeah. on them, then it obviously wasn't him. If we take away the bullet wound beneath the shorts and we pretend like, okay, that there's another explanation for it that we just haven't found yet. Is there a possibility someone wandered upon the bodies after they had been shot and sexually assaulted them? That still wouldn't account for the bullet hole. Well, I'm saying if there's another explanation for the bullet hole, meaning like her shorts were down further a little bit, you know what I mean? Okay, okay. In the chaos of trying to escape someone shooting them, you know what I'm... Could it, is it so hard to believe that these two kids just had the worst luck of all time yeah. and they were sexually assaulted and, and then, then shot, shot down and the two have nothing to do with one another? A passerby on County Line Road did state that the girls were seen, at, they saw the girls at around 5 p.m. walking. So that's the only thing that makes me feel like the sexual assault didn't take place before. If they left the Placker household around 4.30. They were seen at around 5 o'clock. And then at 5.15, Skyla's mother calls to say, I'm on my way, and then Pete went out. But it does take a while to walk half a mile, especially for an older man. So there is a possibility that they might have been sexually assaulted before they were shot. Could you imagine if that's what happens? I mean, and I, I think I think any scenario that we can come up with is just sick and disgusting and twisted. But it, I'm thinking it's two opposite people, like two opposite cases here. Yeah. Regardless if it happened before or after, it doesn't matter. What matters is is that they obviously these two crimes don't correlate. It's like, like it's not the same person that shot them. No. And is there a possibility that maybe Sweet isn't the one who committed the murder? I mean, maybe he killed uh, yeah. his fiance, but not the two girls. I mean, what besides the motive, the confession, which you could say is like, well, I mean, listen to me piling up evidence against him. The shell casings matched. There was a motive and he did confess. Even if there's a small there's a false confession. Yeah. Like even if we ruled out the confession, the shell casings match and he has a motive. And he just has very violent tendencies. I know that doesn't yeah. necessarily make someone a killer. Um, but, I mean, he has done some wild things um, that would make you believe that he is capable of such a crime. Right. Um, but I really, you know what, I don't even know what to say, okay? Except that I think these kids were were unfortunately raped and killed by two separate people. Oh, my God. I mean, because that's the only thing that can make sense. Unless unless Sweet can provide someone else in the vehicle at Maybe the time. Maybe he was with somebody else. Or, you know, there could be any some other corroborating evidence or something that could lead to another explanation that we won't know. Right, like maybe someone else was in the car. That man sexually assaulted them and he shot them. Right, then, he could, then, then things would make a little bit, a little more, bit more sense. A little bit more sense. The only thing that's unfortunate is that there was we couldn't determine footprints at the scene because of all the people that had been through because that would have yeah. offered a lot more explanation 
Um, and, you know, Sweet's mother is going to go on to say, like, oh, there's no way that he would have committed these crimes. He wouldn't hurt a fly. And, like, she explained his aggressive photos on his Facebook page with the weapons. Like, he's just trying to act tough. But I think he was trying, he wanted to be tough with these women and these girls. Like, I'm going to act tough to my um, emotionally distressed fiance, right? That's who I'm going to hurt. And these innocent girls who are incapable of protecting themselves. So I think that goes towards even what his mother was saying about him. And, but again, there is somebody out there that did something to these girls that didn't get prosecuted. And it's either somebody did something separately or there was someone with him that he's not saying. Correct. And that could be it. Yeah. I mean, that really, really could be it. I mean, because you got to think to yourself, there's no way you're getting out of here. Even if you were to testify and say, this person was with me. What are, what are the odds that that, them, you know, him yeah. coughing that up would get him out of some sort of time he's already in he's serving life three life sentences right so what are, what are they gonna say what are they gonna do for him right maybe there's a reason why he's protecting this other right. person that might be related to drugs is it you know is it worth you know fessing up to someone else being there if i'm not even gonna gain anything from it right so he's probably that's what's going on here this is a it's, this is a heartbreaking case and it's so sad and and the end kind of like throws you through a loop a little bit you know but before we go and thank our Patreons, guys, I have something to confess to you. I totally screwed up in this case. Um, the perpetrator's name is Kevin Sweat and not Kevin Sweet. So I have been saying the wrong name the whole time. So those of you that have been going crazy, like you're saying the name wrong, I am admitting to that right now. I um, I actually looked over at the script and I... Told her that that's what was happening. I'm so sorry. It's been a long week, guys. Long week. So I apologize. <laughs> so then we took a little brief moment just to clarify. And I was and, like, yeah. what do I do? <laughs> okay. So now we want to thank our Patreon supporters, our new Patreon supporters, and those that have upped their pledges. Again, none of this is possible without you. And we thank you so, so much. So we want to thank Lisa Halen, Kathleena Music. She upped her pledge to $10. Isabel Ventoris, Kathleen Frey upped her pledge to $10. Carrie Vincent, Lauren, who upped her pledge to $10. Lisa Garten, Camilla Hernandez, Melissa Woy, Hope Rose upped her pledge to $10. Karen upped her pledge to 5 Kayla Salvato, Emily, Christy Halverson, Eternity Jesse, Ashley Johnson, Lindy C, Jerrica Havard up to her pledge to $10, Diana Kemp, Wendy Chalk, Yari Diaz, Anna C. Brooks, Bettina Barth, and Kayla Walker. Guys, I hope I didn't pronounce your name wrong like I did Kevin Sweat. Yes, well, we, Sweat. we don't Kevin do that, Sweat. but this is the thing. Let's be real. If I was reading this or if I was even doing our Patreon names, um, that would be bad. It would be bad. I'm I'm grateful. I, I'm saving you guys with my little yeah. mistakes. <laughs> I'm grateful that you read them off, even though I do love all of you. Um, you would all hate me if I read your names. It would probably be comical. 
<laughs> we should probably have this happen. <laughs> maybe one time. Maybe one time. I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. All right, guys. Well, thank you for joining us. And we will be back in another two weeks to bring you another exciting episode. If you want more than just the bi-weekly episodes that are available on your podcast listening platforms, you can join us at patreon.com slash true crime couple. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. <laughs>